Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12. The epistle reading comes from Hebrews chapter 12, from verse 18 to the end. The mountain of fear and the mountain of joy. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom and storm, to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them, because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. This is the word of the Lord. We stand for the gospel reading. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Glory to you, O Lord. Luke chapter 13, reading from the 10th verse. Jesus heals a crippled woman on the Sabbath. Now Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And just then there appeared a woman with a spirit that had crippled her for 18 years. She was bent over and was quite unable to stand up straight. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said, Woman, you are set free from your ailment. When he laid his hands on her, immediately she stood up straight and began praising God. But the leader of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had cured on the Sabbath, kept saying to the crowd, There are six days on which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be cured, and not on the Sabbath day. But the Lord answered him and said, 
You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to give it water? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 long years, be set free from this bondage on the Sabbath day? When he had said this, all his opponents were put to shame and the entire crowd was rejoicing at all the wonderful things that he was doing. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Please be seated as Victor comes forward to open God's word to us. Morning. Morning. Right. Just before I start, I just wanted to check with you how many of you actually do don't mind the phrase when somebody wishes you good luck? Do you feel that, well, that's not very Christian because you're depending on luck? <laughs> well, can I just say this? While we're singing about the goodness of God, you can have good luck because luck stands for living under Christ's kindness. So we all have good luck because we all are living under Christ's kindness. So I'll just pray before I start. Father, I just want to thank you for this opportunity this morning that we are all gathered here to praise your name, your wonderful name, your blessed name. So as I speak now, Lord, take charge of your words and may the people hear your voice and not mine. In Jesus' name, amen. Right, good morning to everyone. And it's my first time speaking here on a Sunday morning service. But before I start, I'd just actually like to ask a question. How many people here have personally experienced a healing or a miracle? One, two, three, four, quite a lot. And how many of it actually happened on a Sabbath day? A fewer. But the next question is, was it in answer to prayer? your healing and miracle. It probably was. But the next question probably look, sounds odd. Were you actually happy about the healing or did you go away crying because God answered your prayer? <laughs> so that is the normal response that we, we have. You know, when we have the reading, we heard that the lady was praising God, but everybody else was silent, probably for various reasons. But we know one or at least a few of the leaders were not. So in today's gospel reading, we hear that this woman who has been crippled for 18 years, she was healed, but the crowd seemed to be quite silent, and I think probably because they were too frightened to say yes or no, because they were not sure what the leaders of the synagogue was going to do. Because, and obviously we know, they were all, or rather the leaders of the synagogues, the Pharisees, were indignant. That means they were angry, they were annoyed with Jesus. Why? Not because of the healing. They agreed with that, but it's probably of when, the timing, which is a Sabbath. Because it's a Sabbath, as you know, it's a day of rest where no work should be done. So therefore, it means healing should not be done as well. But Jesus obviously called them out because they are the leaders of 
the synagogue, the Pharisees, they should know their work, sorry, their word. They should know what Sabbath is for. And this reminds me of another story from the Bible in Mark, Mark chapter 2, 23 and 24. And it reads, one Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields. And as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? And to me, that also brings another recollection to another passage in Matthew chapter 22. This is a slightly longer passage. I'll just read it. The, the same day, the Sadducees came to him, that is Jesus, who said that there is no resurrection, and they asked a question. Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers among us, the first married and died, and having no offspring left, his wife, having no offspring left his wife to his brother, so too the second and the third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they, they all had her. And Jesus answered, You are wrong, because you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. So in these three passages, there's a similar theme running through, and it's basically a discourse between Jesus and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The leaders of the synagogue, which normally the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they were experts in the Torah, almost similar to what you call theologians today. The Sadducees were largely, mainly from priestly families, tracing their ancestries back to the priest Zadok, and they were, ex- they were experts of the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible. The Pharisees, on the other hand, they are mainly influential middle-class businessmen, leaders of the synagogues. Their main emphasis is on personal piety. So they accept oral tradition in addition to the written law and observing over 600-plus laws in the Torah. But Jesus is actually attacks them for saying that they neither know the word or the power of God. The first thing is obviously Jesus meant for them to say that, you know, with the word, if they had known the word, they would have known that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. But to me, this is the scary part of these three passages. Personally, I think if the teachers of the law who spend years studying and memorizing the Bible, going through all these writings and heritage and inherit, learning through all the past teachers, they can still be ignorant of the word and God's power. What is there 
for me as well. I could do the same. I could be reading the Bible year after year and still be ignorant. I could be the same. But how do I avoid becoming like them? Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3 verse 7, he says that some can always be learning but never coming to the knowledge of the truth. I just want to clarify something as well. By scriptures, I mean the word of God, the Bible, God's inerrant, infallible word. The word for power that Jesus used is the same word that we have in Luke when Jesus said to the apostles, stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. It is also the same word used in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they knew and responded to the word of God. God spoke with them, but they did not know his name. We are saved by hearing the word. We are saved by the gospel, the gospel that tells us that Jesus Christ died for our sins on the cross and he rose from the dead. Hearing the word of grace and embracing it by faith is what saves us. But God wants us to have more than just the word. He wants us to have the power, the Spirit's power. People can see signs and wonders and go on to hell. People can experience signs and wonders and still go on to hell. But having said that, it is also possible to know the word and be lost, to be so sound in your doctrine and not be converted. Make no mistake, the gospel of Jesus Christ is complete without signs and wonders. But the Bible is not complete without signs and wonders. Because you can't take the Bible, unless you take the whole of it, you can't take part of it and only accept what you want. The Bible is written with signs and wonders because God did signs and wonders. One day, God appeared to Moses. Moses got up that morning, and knowing that this day, not knowing that this day is going to be any different, just like us this morning, waking up thinking it's just another day. We're not sure whether it's going to be any different. And as he was walking, watching over the sheep, he came to the foot of Mount Horeb, and he saw a bush on fire. It's probably no different because, as we have seen over the last few weeks, how when dry bushes and dry grass can automatically just set itself on fire. So for Moses, being in the desert, he's used to it. But something must be so different for him to take, a, to take notice a second time. And that is the bush didn't burn up. So one of two things must be different. Either the bush is different or the fire was different. And obviously as Moses started to walk closer to have a closer look, He's probably trying to want a rational explanation why that is so. And like us, we have a lot of questions that we want answers for, but some of them are probably too deep to be revealed this side of eternity. And when Moses approached, God said, stop. Take off your shoes. You are on holy ground. And in that one moment, in that one event, Moses will never be the same again. God unveiled his name. God revealed his name to Moses. And he says, I am that I am. God revealed himself to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, 
as God Almighty, but he didn't reveal his name to them. But by revealing his name to Moses, unprecedented phenomena accompanied the unveiling of God's name, signs and wonders. It began with the burning bush, continued with Aaron's rod that turned into a serpent, and then on to the ten plagues of Egypt, culminating in the night of Passover and the crossing of the Red Sea on dry ground. For the revelation of God's name was inaugurated with unprecedented kind of power. There were signs and wonders that defied natural explanation. Maureen, can we have the first slide? So how do we summarize his word and name? The word relates to God's integrity, his promise, his grace, his inability to lie. Therefore, every promise in the Bible is sure to happen. It is the way that we are saved by the word. The name relates to his honour, his reputation, his power, his influence. It also refers to his vindication. So sometimes we know that God is patient and for many years people continue to abuse the name of Jesus. But God is patient. But one day he will clear his name. I grew up in a, in a Catholic church in Malaysia. It was a lively church and probably unusual for many Catholic churches. The church I went to actually believed in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And then I left Malaysia to go to Singapore for my secondary school and I changed church. I went and started going to a charismatic church before moving on to a Pentecostal church. But during all this time, up until probably about 18, I personally have not witnessed any miracles or healings. I've heard testimonies in church of God's provision, God's healing, but personally I've not witnessed, witnessed it myself. And then I came to London and the first church I went to was Kensington Temple because carrying on the Pentecostal uh, route. And I was there for a couple of years before God led me to Westminster Chapel. As you know, Westminster Chapel is an independent church. It's been quite known for as a preaching centre in central London. And I, I'm really glad that God brought me there because it continued to just deepen my hunger for the Word of God and also for the power of God. And being also part of the eldership there, I, start, I was part of the team that prayed for people and personally thank. I thank the Lord that I started to see and witness for myself healings and miracles. Don't get me wrong, that through all this, through my life, I've always been praying. When I'm unwell for my exams, I've been praying to God, and God did answer my prayers. But when I say miracles and healings, it's seeing something in front of me, you know, happening. But obviously, when I started praying for people at the chapel, it happened. But another blessing, being at the chapel was I met a lady who is now my wife, Judith. So God led me there probably very much to give me such a great blessing. So over the last 15 years or more, the feeling inside of me that there must be more to a Christian life has really grown more acute and it almost become like an all-consuming thing. You know, because I feel there must be more. There need to be more to a Christian life and there is so much more. Because Jesus said, I came, I've come, that you may have life and have it abundantly. And in an NIV, it says to have it to the full. 
I think that the full life or abundant life involves having the word and the power or the spirit that Jesus talked about. Having both of it together, not either or. Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 5, and it says, Our gospel, that is the gospel of Jesus, came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. Paul said to the Corinthians, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of Spirit's power. At a natural level, Often in the wrong sense, people want power. And I think if you ask and you watch many politicians, you can see that. I remember an inter- a question once, reading a question once that was posed to John F. Kennedy, a former president of the United States back in the 60s. Most of you are too young to remember that. And he was asked a question. Why do you want to be president of the United States? Immediately he replied, because that's where the power is. That's for the world. But at the spiritual level, we should also seek or desire to have power. Because Jesus said, we need the power. And in, we saw in Acts, when Jesus told them to wait, and when the Holy Spirit came on them, they received power. It was the power of the Holy Spirit, it was the power on them that enabled Peter to stand up, to speak and preach the gospel. It wasn't so much just the power that enabled him to do that, but the power enabled the words to actually reach and convict the hearts of 3,000 people who were converted that one day. So if Jesus said that we need the power, we do need the power. Because sometimes we can have a form of godliness but denying God's power. What then is God's basis for us to having power in the right sense? I would like to suggest four aspects. The next slide, please, Maureen. So the first aspect is the personal reading of the scriptures. It is important for us to read the Bible daily, to read it through completely. I mean, I've, I know that in the front, we, in the, we do have the Robert Murray McShane Bible reading plan, but I also printed off a couple others just in case you want something different because one of them is going through the chronological uh, way of the Bible. So you have a mixture of, you start with Genesis and very quickly move on to Job and different parts according to how it happened uh, chronologically. R.T. Kendall, a former minister of Westminster Chapel, often asks one question. um, How would you feel if it was flash on the screen above for everyone to see how much you read the Bible and how much you, time, you spend time alone with the Lord. That question used to kind of make me want to just hide under the, the pews because I wasn't ready to have anything flash above because my reading, I didn't have a, a proper Bible reading plan. But at the same time, it actually spurred me to want to do it because I thought if ever anybody... If ever God gives somebody a prophetic gift and is able to tell, say to me, you have not been reading a Bible, I do not want it to be known. So that started me on actually having a, a Bible reading plan in a year. It's, it takes discipline to keep going through it. But I will encourage you. If we say we love God, should we not then equally love his word 
the Bible? Do how much we read the Bible reflect our actual love for God? The Bible is essential for us to knowing God and His will for our lives. It helps us to understand the Bible's big picture. On to the next slide, please. So the second aspect is the personal revelation of the scriptures. Jesus said to the Sadducees, and he said, have you not read? It's as if in a sense mocking them, knowing that they have read, but obviously have you not read? So sometimes we can often read something, but not actually read it. I I know this is not the same about reading, but a similar story. Often there are some times when I look into the fridge and I can't find certain things. And I think most men, or rather most women, will identify with it. And I often can't find it. And I ask Judith, you know, where is the butter or where is it? And she'll come straight in and reach for it and grab it. And yet it was there right in front of me, but I've not seen it. So in, in a way, it's similar with cleaning. It seems that there is men's standard of cleaning and women's standard of cleaning. There is men's searching and a mother's searching. So often, you know, the kids will say, Mom, and the mother seems to know exactly where it is. Or the dad, even though I'm not a dad, you know, often at work when my colleagues ask me, I have no clue, but ask my fellow colleague who's a lady, they will know exactly where things are, and they seem to be able to find it, even though it's right in front of me. And it could be the same with scriptures. There are times when we read a verse and again and again and again, and all of a sudden, something completely new even though it's not new, you've read that verse before, something completely new seems to just leap up at you as, as if you've never read it before. God's word has so much depth to it as, we continue, as he continues to review it to those who seek it. The other important thing of having to read the Bible, reading the Bible, a good reading plan is because we can often also be locked into a point of view, especially for people who have been to church for quite a while. They could be locked into a point of view based on how they've heard a certain minister preach and they think, well, if that minister believes it, I can believe it. Or that is what I've been taught, therefore that's my way I believe it. Or we can be so stuck in our certain way of viewing things in the Bible. So therefore, if we're not careful, we can become experts, our own experts, in our own interpretation of the Bible. We need to personally rethink and seek to acquire the real meaning of a verse. And this can only come with the help of the Holy Spirit and revelation from the Lord. The next slide, please, Maureen. So the third aspect is the personal release of the Spirit. The release of the Spirit comes from the Spirit himself. Oops, sorry. I think I might have jumped the page. Yeah, I think I'll, I went on to the third one instead of the second one. So let me come back to personal rethinking. And I think I've done that. So sorry, Maureen, can you go on to the fourth? Yeah. So the fourth one is the personal release of the Spirit. Obviously, the release of the Spirit only comes from the Spirit himself. The question is, as we know, the Holy Spirit is a very sensitive person. Therefore, how can we get on good terms with the Spirit? If we want power, we have to be on good terms with Him. The Bible is the Spirit's product. It possibly can be said that the Bible is the Holy Spirit's greatest or finest accomplishment. 
He likes it when we like his word. A release of the spirit will result in a personal renewal of power that will restore the honor of God's name. I mean, I love it whenever, you know, we read the Bible, or I read, I read the Bible, and something comes up in the sense, when you read it, it's not so much what you're finding from the Word, it's sometimes when you're reading it, all of a sudden, God reveals more, and you feel that you're just having that one-on-one, one-on-one encounter with Him. You know, that you just feel that that time with Him is suddenly, as an old song says, you know, when he's just there, all the things around seems to just grow dim. I mean, personally, I like to see us, myself, each of us, and the church become alive with his word and spirit, where we live and walk with power. But you may say, well, I don't want the power, I just want a simple, quiet life. But I feel that if Jesus said, more than one on one occasion that we need the power, it must be important for us to have it. In a sense, I feel that, personally, I feel that it is not an option for us whether we want it or not, but we should be obedient to wanting it because that's what he says. As King Saul found out to his loss that obedience is better than sacrifice. May I challenge you to think, to ask yourself the question, how have you thought what it would be like in your own personal life if you had the word and the power operating? For example, you may be even, for, you know, I, I, when I first came to London, I was working in upper crust and I love making teas and coffees and serving the sandwich. And so if ever anybody works in a cafe, have you thought if you are operating in word and power that every sandwich you make, every tea or coffee you make will bring healing or bring revelation to whoever consumes it. Or even if you're a university student, that God, the Holy Spirit, will give you enlightenment to be able to see a new innovation or even a new cure for diseases. And even for a business person, that God will be able to help you tackle the difficulties of the ethics and the morals when you're dealing with other countries where the morals are quite slightly different. Again, I think also having the word and power in your life may also empower you to share the gospel to people that when they hear what you're sharing, it is not your words, but the Holy Spirit will convict them. For we know we are saved because we understand the Bible, not because we are smarter or wiser than anyone, because Paul says we were not wise before we knew God, but it is the Holy Spirit that made the gospel known to us. You may be glad that I'm coming to an end of my talk, but however, I can't finish this talk with a clear conscience if I don't ask two questions. Next slide, yeah. The first question is, have you come to a point in your life where you can say for certain that if you were to die today, you will go to heaven? The next slide, please. And the second question, if you were to stand before God, and we, we might, and if he were to ask you the question, and he may do, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say to him? If you are not sure where you will be when you, when you die, the good news is that you can be certain 
Jesus died for all our sins, yours and mine, past, present, future. But you need to transfer your trust, your trust from trusting in your own works, in your own abilities, in your own standing, into trusting in Jesus alone. But I also, I also sense that for someone maybe listening today here or even listening online, that that person has in the past or even now been involved in witchcraft, new age, or astrology. And I want to actually introduce you to a greater light. You may be searching for power. You may be searching for the light. But you do know that in the presence of the greater light, all other lights have to bow. And Jesus said in John 8 verse 12, I am the light of the world. I pray that you will ask Jesus into your life today to be your saviour. And you can pray with me now. I mean, I will do a quick prayer and you can pray with me now if you want to receive the Lord as your saviour. Next slide, please. Lord Jesus, I need you. I want you. I am sorry for my sins. Wash my sins away by your blood. I welcome your Holy Spirit into my heart. And as best as I know how, I give you my life. Amen. Thank you.